Shalom and marhaba, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. The situation in Israel and Palestine remains tense here on the ground, politically, religiously, and of course, in terms of security. But what happens in the Holy Land doesn't just impact Israelis and Palestinians. It reverberates across the Middle East. In today's episode, we're going to bring you the unique perspective from two key Arab states, Egypt and Jordan, the original peacemakers with Israel, dating back to 1979 and 1994, respectively. To help us make sense of how Egypt and Jordan view events unfolding in the Israeli-Palestinian arena and the key role both states play in the West Bank, Gaza, and Jerusalem, we have with us today Ambassador Hesham Youssef, a retired Egyptian diplomat and currently a senior fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., as well as Farah Badur, the program's director at the Amman Center for Peace and Development. Both Hisham and Farah are contributors to a new and really unique Israel Policy Forum task force called Critical Neighbors, which brings together Israeli, Palestinian, Egyptian, and Jordanian perspectives on recent developments. This was a fantastic conversation on what is, to my mind, a really underappreciated facet of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, namely Egypt and Jordan. Let's get into it. Hi, Hisham. Hi, Farha. Welcome to Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Neri. Hi, Neri. Uh, thank you both for joining us. I think it's a real treat and honor to have you both here. Um, before we get into, I guess, the pressing issues of our day in terms of Egypt and Jordan's roles in the Israeli-Palestinian arena, I wanted to give our listeners a brief overview of how things look in general from Egypt and Jordan. Uh, this doesn't necessarily have to do with Israel-Palestine. Maybe it does. Uh, but I'm keen to give our listeners a little flavor of the current state of play. Uh, Hisham, let's start with you. Give us a sense. What are the burning priorities in Cairo at the moment? It can be domestic, economic, in terms of foreign policy. How do things look from Cairo? Well, thank you very much, Neri, for this question, because I think it's important because it sets the scene and it puts things into perspective. And I think it's also important because uh, if you ask this questions, question to different people around the region about the priorities of their own societies, uh, you will find that the region is quite fragmented. And I think that is an important point to take in mind when discussing uh, different issues about the region, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So as far as Egypt is concerned, there are some things that Egypt has in common with others, but there are some also that are unique to the Egyptian situation. Uh, one that Egypt has in common with a number of other countries is related to developments pertaining to the war in Ukraine, uh, particularly since uh, Egypt is uh, the number one importer of wheat in the whole world. And it used to get between 70 to 80% of its wheat from both Russia and Ukraine. And this has affected uh, the economic situation in Egypt uh, tremendously. And also, um, tourism. Uh, Egypt is uh, an interesting and popular destination to both Russians and Ukrainians. 
So almost one third of uh, tourism coming to Egypt is coming from both countries. So this has also had an impact on uh, the situation in uh, Egypt, uh, particularly on the economic side. Uh, on the foreign policy side, there are also a number of issues that are important to Egypt. Uh, one is the issue regarding the Renaissance Dam and uh, the problem with uh, Ethiopia in relation to reaching an agreement on the filling and, and uh, functioning of the dam. And of course, the situation in Libya is uh, also a, a worrying uh, uh, situation regarding uh, Egypt. Uh, finally, the situation regarding security. And uh, although the security situation has improved, uh, but uh, we have seen only in the last few days uh, an, an, a new attack that had a huge impact uh, on uh, Egypt and uh, reminded us that, uh, you know, the security issues uh, can come up once and again. So these are the issues that are uh, occupying uh, the public opinion in Egypt at this point in time. Right. There was a terror attack in northern Sinai. Um, yes. I think 11 Egyptian soldiers were, were killed in an attack. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Thank you for that overview. Farha, same question to you. Uh, how are things looking right now from Amman? Um, so the country is back from a long Eid al-Fitr uh, holiday, in which Jordanians spent it traveling uh, to their favorite destinations domestically or abroad. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Syria was one of these destinations, uh, with reports that almost 5,000 Jordanians crossed the border to Syria during the Eid holiday. Um, it seems that uh, Jordanians are, are picking up uh, issues exactly where they left them before the holidays. Uh, those issues uh, range from economic situation and the rise of interest rate um, and how it will affect uh, the livelihood of people. Uh, COVID still um, on the agenda and uh, the, the issues of lifting the restrictions and school hours and distancing, etc. Um, other issues on the table is, uh, is the issue of drug smuggling, actually. Just yesterday, the Jordanian authorities uh, foiled yet another attempt to smuggle large amount of pills. And the issue of um, the drug smuggling is always an inevitable segue to discuss the relationship with the Syrian regime and the uh, repatriation of Syrian refugees who account for 1.3 million people and the declining international support of Syrian refugees, which add to the pressure um, that Jordanians uh, endure. Um, other issues uh, on the table is, is the ambitious uh, program of um, reforming the electoral system uh, and definitely the situation on the occupied territories and uh, the prospects of uh, Biden visit uh, to the region. Right. Farha, I have to ask, Jordanians went to visit Syria over Ramadan. What did they go see inside Syria? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I only know that they visit Damascus and the safe uh, areas in, in, in Syria to enjoy Eid, noting that the prices in Syria is very affordable for Jordanians. Uh, but uh, it's not something that I would like to do right now. No. <laughs> right. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So given all those issues, uh, we have to transition to... Uh, issues, I guess, closer to my neck of the woods, and that's Egypt and Jordan's uh, special relations uh, with Israel. Um, I think it may be fair to say that at least prior to the recent escalation and clashes in Jerusalem, 
uh, ties between Israel and Cairo and Israel and Amman uh, seem to be very publicly improving. Uh, right, you had senior officials like Prime Minister Naftali Bennett traveling to meet with uh, Egyptian President Sisi and Jordan's King Abdullah uh, very publicly. Uh, and this may be in contrast, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a contrast to the late Bibi Netanyahu period, where ties, I think definitely between Jerusalem and Amman, maybe also between Jerusalem and Cairo, didn't seem to be all that great. Um, is this a fair assessment? Farhar, let's start with you, and then we'll switch to Hisham. Uh, what do you make of Israeli-Jordanian relations right now, and I guess in recent historical perspective? You are giving a fair assessment, Neri. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, when Netanyahu left, you could hear uh, a big sigh of relief in Amman. Uh, the leadership in Jordan never trusted Netanyahu. He has no credibility whatsoever. Um, he's viewed as an opportunist who will uh, do anything to stay alive politically, even if this meant sacrificing decades of partnership with Jordan or jeopardizing Jordan's uh, stability. Uh, on a number of occasions, uh, Netanyahu broke promises that were made to the king, such as uh, handing over camera footage of the killing of the Jordanian judge Ra'id Zaiter in 2014. And in 2017, he, he also failed to honor the promise to investigate and hold accountable uh, the Israeli embassy guard who killed two Jordanians, one doctor and one teenager. And not only he failed to promise his, to hold his promise, Netanyahu gave the guard a hero welcome, which really provoked Jordanians and seen as an insult to the Jordanian government. And not to mention, you know, recent number of incidents like his decision of holding transferring water to Jordan and canceling the Crown Prince for St. Joseph Mosque. So at, at, we can say that at, at the heart uh, of this uh, suspicion and, and mistrust, is a fear among uh, Jordanian leadership that Netanyahu and any right-wing government has never abandoned the idea of the Jordanian option in turning Jordan into um, an, an alternative homeland for Palestinians. And under Netanyahu leadership, uh, Israel have accelerated the settlement activity in the West Bank and implemented uh, projects that were changing the realities on the ground and uh, um, challenging the Hashemite custodianship in Jerusalem with no consideration to how these policies will ripple effect eastward. Um, the most recent example of these policies were plans to annex uh, the Jordan Valley in violations of uh, the peace treaty with, with Jordan, uh, which led King Abdullah to tell Der Spiegel that annexation could lead to a massive conflict. And the Jordan um, is considering all options to respond uh, if the plans were carried out. Um, in a way, the king was referring to the possibility of cancellation or freezing of the Jordanian peace treaty with Israel or even suspending uh, the security cooperation with Israel. And for a decade, Neri, you could see that the king barely and even refused to speak to Netanyahu. Uh, you could see that uh, there was no high-level um, strategic talks between Jordan and Israel. Uh, connections were maintained uh, at a tactical level by mid-level diplomats and advisor and personnel, and so etc. However, with the formation of the new um, Lapid uh, Bennett government, it's totally different story. Um, Bennett uh, worked to uh, restore the bilateral relations and enabled progress on a number of practical fronts, including um, 
an agreement to increase Jordan exports to the West Bank, and transferring additional 50 cubic meters of water to Jordan. And from that time on, as you said, a number of high-level visits um, took place with King Abdullah and Jordanian officials, Hitler, um, Bennett, with Lapid, with um, Gantz and Barlev, and also the welcoming of President Herzog at the Husseiniya Palace. And in all these meetings, uh, these meetings stressed the importance of a strategic partnership between the two countries uh, and maintaining regional peace and stability. They also discussed ways to enhance cooperation in trade, energy, water, uh, food security. So I, I agree with your assessment. <laughs> the bilateral relations uh, under uh, Bennett Lapid uh, leadership is definitely in a much better that okay it's good to know that that it wasn't just my uh assessment or uh opinion from here but i also uh in my dealings with um netanyahu's prime minister's office uh there whenever jordan came up i was uh let's put it that way shocked by uh by how they viewed the very strategic and very important ties uh mm -hmm. but that's a that's a story for a different time hisham how do you assess uh, Israeli-Egyptian relations uh, under the new government and uh, give us a sense of what it was like also under Netanyahu? Well, in contrast to the situation in Jordan that was mentioned by Farah, uh, which I totally agree with her assessment, and I agree with your assessment as well, that there has been some improvement. But uh, the number of points of friction between Jordan and Israel during the, the Netanyahu times uh, were much more numerous than they were with Egypt. Uh, so the situation um, in relation to cooperation between Israel and Egypt was, was not as tense as it was with Jordan. Uh, there were a number of difficulties and uh, tensions, but, but they weren't uh, uh, that acute. Uh, we had the problem in relation to uh, uh, the exporting of gas from Egypt to Israel that stopped as a result of a number of factors. Uh, and there was uh, uh, a case that was resolved in uh, a manner that was acceptable to both sides. So they were able to overcome a number of difficulties. Uh, also, security cooperation, I think, went well between Egypt and Israel at the time. But as you mentioned, uh, the situation improved with uh, the new government. And not only uh, was uh, Bennett uh, received in Cairo uh, for a summit with the president, but there was also a trilateral summit with uh, the leader of the United Arab Emirates. So the situation improved. And also another gas deal was reached between Egypt uh, and Israel for Egypt to import gas from Israel and uh, perhaps also exported to uh, Europe and so on. So there were a number of important developments. Uh, finally, uh, Egypt also participated in the Negev uh, summit, which I think is also a reflection of uh, how things are improving. But at the same time, it had an important message to the summit that uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict cannot be set aside at this point in time. Right. Uh I have to ask, uh, Farha, why 
didn't Jordan participate in the Negev summit? Uh, this was a high-level summit uh, in southern Israel, uh, I think a few weeks ago, uh, hosted by Foreign Minister Yair Lapid. Uh, Egypt attended, Morocco attended, the UAE attended, and Bahrain attended, uh, but Jordan uh, did not attend. I have a sense of why uh, the king didn't send a representative, but uh, how would you explain the fact that Jordan, um, obviously one of the original uh, peacemakers with Israel uh, chose not to attend this particular summit. Uh, so I, I think that Jordan is facing a predicament here. Um, from one hand, um, there is a need, you know, to get closer to Abraham Accords and any regional uh, gathering uh, that uh, benefit, you know, Jordan. And on the other hand, there is a need to distance itself from the Accords for internal and external calculations as well. Uh, we could see that uh, Jordan is, is cautiously getting closer to um, the Abraham Accords. And just last year, it signed a letter of intent uh, with Israel um, and with the United Arab Emirates, um, under which the UAE uh, would have fund uh, a Jordanian solar farm to um, export power to Israel in exchange for Israel sending uh, desalinating uh, water uh, to, to Jordan. And this kind of um, interdependence uh, project is highly important to Jordan to address its water and energy security and definitely boost its uh, poor economy. Um, and that falls under the wider ambitious plan to um, transform Jordan into a regional energy hub, allowing Jordan to re-export oil and gas uh, to the region and, and connect its electricity grid uh, to neighboring countries. Um, and as you know, there were talks about supplying Lebanon with uh, electricity via Syria uh, to help stabilizing uh, Lebanon. Uh, so the Nagab summit, even though it's very attracting for Jordan you know, to be part of this uh, gathering, but, but like, um, like the Abraham Accords, like any regional gathering, there are um, there a number of factors that um, should be taken in consideration uh, when factoring uh, policies towards uh, these um, uh, alliances or gatherings. First of all uh, is the public opinion and its negative sensitivity toward um, the Abraham Accords and uh, such uh, you know, gatherings, uh, which widely seen as a reinforcement of an occupying power. Um, and as you know, Niri, um, it comes to when it comes to the Palestinian issue, there is a limit for how much the Jordanian government can take risk and ignite uh, the public anger. Um, on, the other, on the other hand, there is the issue of the priorities among Arab countries who signed the accords and joined uh, the Negev summit. And, um, and, and definitely the Palestinian issue is not really on the top of these uh, priorities. Uh, while for Jordan, the Palestinian issue is viewed as a domestic issue and achieving uh, a two-state solution is a national interest. So when, when dealing with these uh, and deciding whether to uh, participate at these gatherings or not, Jordan needs to answer whether being close to a grouping that has a different priorities will help or hinder Jordan's ability to act according to its national interest and, and, and priorities. So um, I would say that drafting its policy toward um, Jordan, drafting its policy toward the Abraham Accords, to any regional gathering will depend on these factors um, and its ability to convince the regional partners to prioritize the Palestinian issue and use these gatherings and the alliances and accords uh, as a leverage 
to push for a credible process that create political horizon that somehow will soften the public opinion and, and pave the way for regional stability. That makes sense. Uh, obviously, the countries, I guess, farther afield uh, in the Middle East have less of an attachment or prioritize the Palestinian issue less mm-hmm. than uh, a country like Jordan. Hisham, what do you make of, uh, I guess, Egypt's role or Egypt's embrace or newfound embrace of Israel in the age of the Abraham Accords, right? So Egypt obviously was the first uh, Arab state to make peace with Israel back in 1979, uh, but it had been a rather cold peace, at least in terms of society-to-society uh, society relations, uh, if not government-to-government government relations. So do you think the Abraham Accords, the fact that all these other uh, Arab states normalized with Israel, had an effect on how Cairo perceived its own flexibility in terms of its relations with Israel? Well, as, as I mentioned, the relations between Egypt and Israel uh, have been quite solid relations. Yes, it has been a cold peace, uh, but it has also been uh, a cornerstone of stability in the region. And this has been the case for the last 40 plus years. Um, but at the end of the day, as you also mentioned, uh, countries that are a little further away from uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, have some additional flexibility. But for countries like Egypt, Jordan, uh, and perhaps uh, other countries close to the conflict, that is much more difficult. So there is a ceiling, and this ceiling is dictated by by public opinion, by the the situation of uh, Egypt uh, and and Jordan in particular. So they have much more at stake in relation to the conflict. So, and this is one of the things that we have been trying to explain to both to the leadership and public opinion in Israel that, you know, uh, there is a ceiling that would prevent improving relations to the maximum potential that they can achieve as long as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict continues. And as far as the Abraham Accord is concerned, um, Egypt has no problem in having countries uh, establish relations with Israel. But uh, our hope was to use these relations as an incentive for Israel to advance its positions in relation to the conflict, and not to have them as a separate threat. Uh, Because uh, even uh, countries like the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, or otherwise, uh, they are still affected, and the public opinion is still affected by how things evolve in relation to the conflict. And this can be seen clearly in the developments that took place in Ramadan, in uh, the Aqsa Mosque. So even countries like the United Arab Emirates uh, made strong statements uh, in relation to the situation in Al-Aqsa Mosque. So the situation is complicated, as you well know, and it will need to be dealt with in a manner that would help advance um, the prospects of peace rather than have a separate track in relation to this to this aspect. If this takes place, I think this can be an important addition to uh, both uh, the Abraham Accord countries, to Israel, and to advancing the prospects of peace. Well, as, as you both know, Israel Policy Forum uh, wholly agrees 
with that assessment. And I think it is interesting that when the Abraham Accords were, were signed, uh, Netanyahu definitely domestically touted it as a way to circumvent the Palestinian issue, that uh, the Arab world, if not the world writ large, uh, no longer prioritized or cared about the Palestinian issue and Israel could uh, do as it wanted uh, on the ground here. Uh, I think events, especially over the past few weeks, uh, uh, have reminded us once again that that's not the case, uh, to say nothing of last year, uh, given the Gaza war, which I think is a good transition for discussion about the brass tacks, uh, as it were, of Egypt and Jordan's roles in the Palestinian arena. Um, Hisham, let's start with you and Egypt's role in Gaza. Uh, as we know, Egypt uh, plays a mediating role, right, between Israel and Hamas and the other Gazan factions, trying to keep things uh, from escalating. Uh, it's been doing that now in recent weeks. Uh, Egypt also has, I think, important economic ties to Gaza. Uh, it's a huge part of the reconstruction efforts coming out of last year's war. Um, Egypt, effectively, it's a lifeline to the outside world for Gaza. So explain to us, if you could, Egypt's role um, in the Strip, how it keeps things stable, and how really Cairo views its own strategic interests in trying to keep things stable in Gaza. Uh, Nebi, you're absolutely right. Uh, Egypt has been very active in all kinds of aspects pertaining to Gaza, and it has intervened in uh, trying to end uh, several wars that, wars that took place uh, in uh, relation to the situation between Israel and Gaza. Uh, in, in many instances, uh, it was uh, quite successful with the help of others. So it wasn't only Egypt, but Egypt, I think, played an instrumental role. And as you also mentioned, uh, an important role in relation to uh, reconstruction, particularly as a result of uh, what transpired in uh, the war last May. Uh, Egypt uh, indicated that it was going to provide $0.5 billion to uh, help in the process of, of reconstruction. And this is unprecedented in, in Egyptian history, despite uh, the economic situation in Egypt. But they uh, wanted to send a message to the international community and to the Palestinian people that uh, Egypt will do its utmost in relation to helping uh, the Palestinians, uh, particularly uh, regarding the dire situation uh, in, in Gaza. Uh, but uh, more recently, also... <laughs> Uh, ironically, as a result of the situation in Ukraine and uh, developments pertaining to uh, inflation and rising prices of all kinds of things, also there has been some difficulties uh, in uh, advancing uh, reconstruction at the pace that Egypt would have liked to, to achieve. Uh, but it's an ongoing process, and uh, this is also done in coordination with Israel in order to ensure that this moves in a, in a, a, a smooth way. So we will see how things develop. But in general, I think uh, Egypt will continue to consider Gaza as uh, a strategic uh, area of interest to Egypt, uh, and its development is important to the stability uh, in this uh, region as well. And that's because why? That the Egyptian people view images of suffering in Gaza and that that could have a political dimension in Egypt? Is it fear of, of collapse in Gaza? How would you explain the strategic interest? All of the above. Uh, as you know, uh, before 1967, Egypt was administrating uh, the uh, 
uh, Gaza Strip. So we have very strong relations, not with the Palestinian question and with the situation uh, in Gaza. And Egypt has been one of the most active uh, parties in relation to the Palestinian question over the years. Of course, along with others, including uh, Jordan and uh, at one point in time, Syria and the situation in Lebanon and so on. So, so this has been one of the most important priority issues for Egypt uh, for several decades. And this will continue to be the case because it is a crucial dimension in achieving stability in the region. We do not believe in Egypt that you can achieve stability in the region without resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And as a matter of fact, beyond that, there is the Arab-Israeli conflict because there are still problems with Lebanon and Syria that need to be resolved as well. So, so this is part of the Egyptian vision that has been um, adopted by Egypt since the Madrid conference and uh, its effort that has been done since then. And it will continue to, to do what is necessary to, to try to uh, achieve this object. Okay. Uh, Farah. In terms of Jordan and the West Bank and Jerusalem, uh, you mentioned earlier the historic and uh, political and religious ties uh, of the Hashemites to, to especially the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. So I was curious, give us a sense, what levers does Jordan have in the West Bank, in Jerusalem? Uh, and like I asked Hashem, what is it most concerned about uh, across the Jordan River? Is it strictly instability? Is it the fate of the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Um, okay, I'll, I'll get to that. But before, I want to give uh, a context for, Amer- for our American listeners, uh, you know, about Jordan-Palestine relationship. Uh, Jordan has the longest border with Israel and the West Bank. Uh, it's a country that participated in almost every war against Israel. and It's the host of more than 2 million Palestinian refugees. And Jordan is the only Arab country that granted citizenship to Palestinians. So you can imagine how the internal politics is entangled with the Palestinian issue. Moreover, um, the Hashemites, as you said, have been the custodians of Muslim and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem since 1917, a role that has been uh, reaffirmed by peace treaty with Israel. It was acknowledged by 22 countries of the Arab League, by 56 countries of the Organization of the Islamic Cooperation, um, by um, His uh, Holiness uh, the Pope, the Anglican Church, the Patriarch of Russia, the President of the World Lutheran Federation, uh, all the Christian Church uh, leaders of, of Jerusalem, and so on. So, given the geography, demography, history, and legal connection, Jordan is most affected by uh, instability and occupied territories uh, and has a direct interest in resolving uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, A good and a very recent example of instability west of the river that has an eastward ripple effect is what happened in Jerusalem this Ramadan. In spite of all the efforts and meetings uh, with the Israelis to maintain calm, which succeeded for a larger extent, Despite these efforts, not only that it did not listen the public backlash um, to what happened, it seems that yet again, Hamas took all the credit um, of that effort. Uh, consequently, we could see a bigger shift towards open up to Hamas among wide circles of the political elite in Jordan and, and the public as well. And the majority of, of the public uh, elite uh, were pressuring toward opening channels of communication with Hamas and learning from the successful Egyptian model. 
Um, and as uh, you know, Hisham was saying, uh, um, Egypt played a role and a very important role in establishing a relationship with Hamas. And despite its difficult relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, they have this relationship and they asserted themselves as mediators between the group from one hand and the U.S. and Israel from the other. And they used uh, this mediation role as a leverage to consolidate their national interest. So you have those um, um, in, in Jordan who are advocating for opening channels of communication with Hamas. Uh, and they are putting a very uh, compelling argument uh, that Jordan should create such leverage and use Hamas as a pressuring card to face the Israeli destabilization uh, uh, policies. And unlike Fatah, for example, Hamas never had a bloody confrontation with the Jordanian army. And I think that resonates very well with the Jordanian public. And it seems that uh, Hamas has been picking up these signals and uh, has been flirting with the Jordanian government for a while. Um, in a number of occasions, uh, Khaled Mash'al addressed the Jordanian public last year and stating that the resistance rockets is protecting Jerusalem, the resistance rocket is protecting the Hashemite custodianship in Jerusalem and preventing the alternative homeland scheme. Um, and in those occasions, Hamas leader thanked the Jordanian tribes uh, for their solidarity, uh, stating that Jordan would continue to be the land for mobilization and steadfast. Uh, this slogan, the land of mobilization and steadfast, is a, is a slogan that in the past used to have a very negative sensitivity among Jordanians. This time it didn't. So. From a, a leadership perspective, the rise of Hamas popularity among Jordanians is seen as a threat, given the group ideology and fear of uh, consequences of empowering uh, political Islam projects in the region, and how will it affect uh, relationship with regional partners, and how will it in interplay uh, domestically, uh, of course. Um, so... Yes, Jordan is very concerned about everything that's happening in the West Bank. Jordan is very concerned about consolidating uh, the Hashemite custodianship in, in, uh, in Jerusalem and also assert itself as a protector uh, of Jerusalem and a protector of the custodianship. Um, and up until now, uh, you can see that the government did not um, really give in into pressure um, and still maintain this cautious approach when dealing with the group um, and it's focus its policies on, on coordinating with the PA and other regional partners uh, to fight any Israeli attempts to alter the historical and legal status quo in Jerusalem and any attempts to divide the Haram Sharif temporarily or, or, or spatially. Um, so everything that happens in, in, in the West Bank, it has a direct uh, you know, impact in, in Jordan. So on that point, uh, recent events in Jerusalem and at Al-Aqsa. Uh, Hisham, could you explain to our listeners, because this is a point that is often, uh, I guess, overlooked or, or not understood well enough, why does Al-Aqsa resonate so deeply in the Arab and Muslim world? And from your point of view, from maybe the Egyptian point of view, what is, how do you see Israel, I guess, violating prior understandings, the so-called status quo, uh, at Al-Aqsa? Well, Jerusalem is the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Al-Aqsa Mosque is the heart of Jerusalem as far as the Palestinians, the Arab world, and the Islamic world are concerned. And they are, and East Jerusalem is part of the occupied Palestinian territories in 1967. Mm -hmm. So for 
you know, millions and millions around the world and for all the countries in the region, the international community, they consider East Jerusalem, including Al-Aqsa Mosque, as part of the occupied Palestinian territories that should be part of the Palestinian state. So this is something that is, uh, you know, a make or break for the Palestinians. And as you well know, uh, many rounds of negotiations failed as a result of differences in relation to Jews. Uh, there was an understanding that was accepted by the government of Israel in relation to the status quo that Farah mentioned and in relation to the role of Jordan and the custodianship of Jordan to the holy places, both Islamic and Christian in uh, Jerusalem. And this is an understanding that was reached with the help of the Americans. And Israel is not respecting this understanding and this agreement that was shepherded by the United States. Uh, only, only a few days ago, yesterday or the day before, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel indicated that um, what happens in uh, Jerusalem and what happens in Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, will be determined by Israel. And this is a contradiction in relation to the agreements signed by uh, Israel with Jordan, uh, the understanding and agreement reached with the United States, and the status of uh, Jerusalem and the mosque. So this has to be understood by, uh, by public opinion in Israel and by public opinion in the United States and uh, elsewhere. Uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque is the third holiest place in Islam. And it is something that, uh, you know, every time we see tensions uh, in Jerusalem, uh, sometimes they are related to... Uh, uh, illegal evictions, uh, all kinds of practices in Jerusalem and so on, but they are mainly related to what transpires in Al-Aqsa Mosque. So, and this was also the case in uh, Ramadan this year and it, before Ramadan, and it was the case also last year in May as well and so on. So this is a recurring issue. And uh, if, if there are those in Israel who feel that uh, uh, at one point in time, the Palestinians would give up or the uh, Arab world or the Islamic world would give up. I, I think they should revise uh, their views because I don't think that this will uh, take place. Uh, so so this is an important issue that has to be understood. So Hisham, just to, just to underline this point, from your perspective, from I guess the Egyptian perspective, it, you view Israel and the Israeli government as allowing... Uh, the violation or actively violating the status quo at Al-Aqsa by, by what? Allowing Jewish visitors to, to worship, by the, the actions of the security forces on Al-Aqsa Mosque? What, are uh, a, a number, the, what you mentioned is absolutely correct, but it's beyond that as well. There is a role that has to be played by the Jordanian Waqf in accordance in accordance to the agreement with Jordan, and I think Farah can, can speak about this in detail. So, and, and this was not respected by successive Israeli governments, I have to admit. So it is not only the current government. 
But the current government, as a result of the fact that uh, they keep saying that they are weak and the government will fall apart and so on, so they're also trying to, uh, you know, indicate to uh, the far right that uh, this is a strong government and then etc. So they are maintaining the positions in relation to Jerusalem. But but the outcome of these kinds of policies uh, is that we will see further escalation, further tensions, and perhaps uh, go. You know, the situation can go out of hand. And this is something that is not in the interest uh, neither of the Israelis nor the Palestinians. Uh, nor the Egyptians, nor the Jordanians, nor the region as a whole. So we hope that uh, that wisdom would prevail, and that the, the current policies of the Israeli government would allow the situation to uh, ameliorate by abiding by previous agreements, including those that was reached by Netanyahu. As a matter of fact, so this is not something that was reached by. Uh, um, a more center or left-leaning uh, government. No, this was reached by none other than Netanyahu himself in an understanding and agreement with the United States. So Farha, uh, Hisham stole, stole my question to you, but uh, Prime Minister Bennett, uh, as Hisham mentioned, yesterday in the cabinet meeting uh, said something to the effect of only the Israeli government would decide uh, the status at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, the, the Temple Mount, and that no foreign entity would decide what happens on the mount in the compound. And this was, to my mind, Bennett responding to what uh, Arab-Israeli Islamist leader Mansour Abbas uh, wrote, I believe, the day prior, which said that he would defer to King Abdullah of Jordan with regard to any uh, renewed status quo or understandings vis-a-vis the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So I'm curious to get your sense. We all know that Israel and the Jordanians are set to to meet, to to hash out, I guess, renewed understandings about Al-Aqsa. Um, what do you think the discussions in those meetings will, will be about? And, and are you optimistic that some kind of new modus vivendi or a renewed status quo is is possible? Um, so, Niri, you know, Bennett's uh, statement, uh, really, it, uh, it gets in, in, in violation of the peace treaty with, with Israel, and Article 9 of the peace treaty, which really reaffirmed uh, the Jordanian uh, uh, role uh, uh, on the holy sites in, in Jerusalem. Um, and I really want to um, just say that um, for, for more than 100 years, uh, the Hashemite custodianship was um, uninterrupted. Extended during the Israeli occupation in 67, the signing of peace treaty in 94, and, and until this day, and included a wide you know, range of, of duties uh, through the Jordanian Jerusalem Al Qaf Department, which uh, administrated Al Aqsa Mosque Al Haram Sharif, including its renovation and maintenance. Um, it it includes employment of around 1,000 guards, staffs, and other workers, and maintaining the status quo, which, uh, you know, Hisham referred to, that, you know, Muslim uh, pray and non-Muslim visit. Um, however, the, the agency of the Al-Qaf has been systematically eroded uh, in the past decade, till we reached a phase right now uh, that even with the good intentions of the Jordanian and Israeli side uh, to repair the damage of bilateral relations, those attempts can't really reverse the damage as quickly as needed uh, while also dealing with the internal pressures. And as a result, you could see uh, the 
the Jordanian you know, government resorted uh, to diplomatic pressure on, on, on Israel, um, including you know, holding talks and uh, calls with a number of regional uh, partners and, uh, um, and also calling the, you know, having calls between King Abdullah and um, Biden. And with all these meetings, the Jordanian message was that we can't keep up on managing the conflict infinitely or shrinking it. It's a matter of time that there is another round of violations uh, take place uh, with likely more, more escalation. Um, so there is a need to uh, reaffirm um, what does it mean? What is the status quo? The code means. Uh, and there is some reports uh, by um, uh, the, Palestine, uh, the, the American envoys who said that uh, they realized uh, from their meetings uh, in the region that there is a mis misunderstanding about what the status uh, quo means. Uh, so I hope in, in the next uh, meeting with, with the Americans um, uh, that they, the main uh, mission of the American is to clarify uh, that. Uh, that understanding, um, and of course, you know, trying to um, address the, the issue not only in the short terms and in terms of uh, keeping calm um, in, in the city, but also address the root causes of violence and get the parties back to the negotiation table. Um, and that really requires respecting the legal and historical status quo, as well as the Hashemite custodianship, and uh, creating a credible, you know, pol political horizon for uh, resolving the. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. No, no, you did. Uh, there's, there's not much I can say because I also uh, definitely noticed what Bennett said yesterday, and I'm not quite sure mm -hmm. he he fully understood. I guess the implications of what he was saying, or even if he did understand the implications, uh, I guess domestic politics or even the politics of his own political party took precedent over. Uh, like you said, long-standing understandings uh, with Jordan over the status quo at, at Al-Aqsa and the special role played by uh, played by the Hashemites there. So uh, uh, it remains to be seen, at least to my mind, if Bennett has the political space uh, to uh, to actually meet with the Jordanians and to actually come to to renewed understandings um, and not let his own, I guess, domestic political needs dictate something as uh, as explosive. As a status of of Alexa, exactly. It would be a shame because it will be like a repetition of Netanyahu policies, and, um, and that really will uh, reverse all the uh, progress that that took place uh, on the bilateral relations. Right, right, right. And that would be a shame after some ten months of of real progress uh, in Israel Jordanian bilateral ties. Um, final question to you both, uh, since. Israel Policy Forum is an American organization, and I think most of our listeners, but not all of our listeners, uh, are in the United States. I'd like to ask you both, and we'll start with Hashem, about the U.S. role in all of this, uh, i.e., what is Washington doing? What should Washington be doing uh, in Israel-Palestine, uh, also possibly with respect to Egypt and Jordan? Um, really, Hashem, give us a sense, what is the view from the Middle East about U.S. policy in the Middle East, uh, especially given the long-touted pivot to, to Asia, uh, and also the fact that there's obviously an ongoing war in Eastern Europe. Well, yes, we know that the world is preoccupied by, by what is happening uh, in relation to the war in Ukraine, justifiably so. 
but this doesn't mean that other conflicts uh, can be ignored. And uh, one of the things that will happen was also mentioned by Farah that we have uh, a visit expected uh, by President Biden to the region uh, in a few weeks' time, probably by, by the end of June. Uh, and this is an, an important opportunity uh, for the United States to put this conflict back on track. We know that the United States does not have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as one of its top priority issues. We understand that. And we know that there are other competing issues. We also understand that. But uh, we also know how instrumental uh, the role of the U.S. has been in relation to this conflict uh, for the last uh, 30, 40 years at least. So uh, the United States was instrumental in relation to the peace agreement with Egypt, uh, in the peace agreement with Jordan, in uh, convening uh, the Madrid Peace Conference, uh, and in almost every single negotiations that took place between uh, Israelis and Palestinians to uh, advance the prospects of peace. Uh, this is not the time to uh, to forego this issue. Uh, it is not a priority, but this doesn't mean that nothing can be done. Uh, I think uh, the United States, as one of the strongest allies of Israel, uh, should try to persuade Israel that the policies that Israel is, uh, you know, uh, adopting at this point in time will not work. Israel cannot continue to say no negotiations, no two-state solution, no one-state outcome. Uh, we will not face settlements. They recently announced additional settlements. Uh, Jerusalem, as we were just discussing, is uh, uh, you know something that we control 100%, and so on. So these positions are not sustainable. And we have had rounds of violence for the last... 10, 15 years, and this cannot continue. So if Israel feels that this, this particular status quo can be maintained, we beg to differ. We feel that this status quo will not continue and cannot be sustained. And what happened in Las Bay is an indication, and what happened in the world previously to that uh, in, in 2014 uh, and, and so on, so this is not the same. So the solution is to try to see how the United States can translate its position, its official position, into something uh, practical on the ground. Uh, it, the United States keeps saying that it supports a two-state solution as the only solution. Okay, what does this mean in practical terms and what can be done to achieve this objective? Similarly, it says uh, there has to be equal measures of uh, dignity, security, and uh, prosperity to both sides. Okay, how can this be achieved? So we want the United States to be more forceful in relation to what can be done and not indicate that, you know, no, we can't achieve peace now. Yes, we understand that we cannot be, give, be, achieve peace now, but we cannot also give excuses to the, both parties not to make the hard choices and decisions in order to advance the prospects of peace. Without hope, the situation in the region will continue to be explosive and we will be firefighting from one, one crisis to another. And this is 
this will bring us further away from peace than we have ever been, and this is not to the advantage of all those who are concerned in the region. Farha, last word to you. Uh, what would you like to see from Washington? How do you view Washington and the Middle East these days? Basically, I, I agree completely with every word uh, Hisham said. Um, um, I don't know for how long uh, we can maintain to uh, manage and uh, shrink uh, the conflict, especially like there is a, a lot of, um, you know, instability when it comes to the even the current uh, Israeli uh, government. Uh, will it survive uh, uh, in the next months? Are we going to see uh, new elections? Will Bibi come back? Uh, uh, we will have another um, right-wing uh, government that will take place. And so there are a lot of dynamics that shows that the status quo policies cannot be maintained, uh, that you need to address the root cause of, of the problems. And, and here, the United States definitely uh, could play a, a great role um, in creating a process of first, um, as we said earlier, um, making sure that all the parties agree on the, the status quo um, you know, the definition and uh, having a restoration of the status quo and uh, empowering uh, the Jordanian custodianship in, in Jerusalem. And this is, you know, for, for the short for the short and uh, midterm, uh, you know, ways. But uh, for the long term, uh, there should be uh, a process that really uh, revive the political horizon and give uh, Palestinian people the hope uh, that uh, th there will be uh, a process that will uh, enable them to establish their own uh, states. Um, so um, everyone needs the, the U.S. Uh, to be actively involved. Um, otherwise, um, um, the the future do not look that that bright. Yeah, uh, I w I'm going to take that concluding sentence as an optimistic note, hoping that uh, the future does become brighter uh, and not, as so often happens on this podcast, uh, a more depressing note. <laughs> whether we're talking about uh, Israeli domestic politics or regional affairs or security affairs. Um, so that's my, uh, my big takeaway. Uh, thank you both, Hisham and Farha, for a fascinating discussion. And thank you both for taking part in this really vital uh, task force project put forward by the Israel Policy Forum called Critical Neighbors. Uh, I really do believe, both personally and professionally, that uh, Egypt and Jordan uh, are really vital players uh, in this part of the world and, and should receive uh, a lot more attention for what they do and, and what they can do uh, for the prospects of peace and stability here. So thank you both for coming on today. Thank you very much, Neri. It was a pleasure talking to both you and to Farah. Thank you, Neri, and thank you, Hisham. My pleasure. Okay, that was Hisham Youssef and Farah Badur. Many thanks to them for sharing their unique perspectives with us. And if you want to read their recent analyses, do check out the Critical Neighbors Task Force Report at the Israel Policy Forum website. In the coming weeks, we'll also have on the podcast Israel Policy Forum Policy Advisor Nimrod Novik and Palestinian Analyst Ibrahim Dalalsha for their analyses. So do look out for that. Before we sign off, as always, special thanks to our producer Jacob Gilman and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast, you know who you are. Just remember to subscribe, and again, and as always, thank you for listening.